The National Archives podcast series, Thomas Armstrong, the Smuggler King of Colour Codes, presented by Dr Nick Barrett. It is actually very nice to be giving a talk on a subject that isn't something I usually talk about. I seem to have spent the last 12 years or so bouncing between 13th century state finance and fiscal history or behind the scenes of who do you think you are. And in many ways, I'm going back even further than that for the subject of today's talk. I want to explore the life of a certain Captain Thomas Armstrong, who I first encountered researching on a programme called House Detectives. And the records that I used, which I want to explain in a bit more detail, were just so rich, full of social detail, about not just his life and those of his colleagues, but also about the 18th century coastal communities in which many of the customs officers served. So what I'm going to do is take you through the story of Thomas Armstrong, transport you back in time to the 18th century. So there's going to be a lot of imagining going on. Normally when I do talks, I don't go into any slides or PowerPoint presentations or any of that sort of stuff, but I have got a few images up today, partly to illustrate where the story took place, but also to show some of the richness and diversity of the material at hand. All of this, I should add, is here at the National Archives. It's an incredible material, and most of it is very easily indexed and accessible. So more about that very shortly. But the journey begins, I suppose, with a house. This house in particular, Cliff House, marked up in the corner, called Ark House at that time. This again comes from our collections. It was bound up in 19th century correspondence, the Granville Papers, from someone called Fanny Arkwright, who visited the house and was writing back to her friend, the Duke of Devonshire, where she stayed. But this, in many ways, is where the journey began, because for house detectives, we were called in by the occupants of this particular property. And they wanted to find a little bit more about who owned the house, and in particular, when it was built. Because they'd already tracked down a rather mysterious note, which was published in a secondary source, historical notes on colour coats, which is a tiny little hamlet on the northeast coast of England. And it cites that on the 28th of July, 1768, Benjamin Fleming of Newcastle, etc. You can read that for yourself. And it named the person who built the house, which in many ways is quite unusual. But that was the first major clue. Thomas Armstrong of North Shields, a commander of His Majesty's Cutter, the Bridlington. So as part of the investigation into the story of Cliff House... We wanted to find out more about the chap who had actually designed and built this property because there were some very strange architectural features. For a start, it was perched right up on the cliff edge. Yet there were some very deep double cellars that we uncovered, linked to the shore by a tunnel that came out just above the high tide mark. What on earth was he doing building a tunnel to his cellars? So that was the first mystery we had to solve. So in many ways, I followed up on this piece of information here. He was a commander of His Majesty's Cutter, the Bridlington. And so first of all, it was really a case of working out what was colour coats like? What was the community in which Thomas was living? And as you can see, for a start, there's a lot of oppressive dark grey skies. And these are local paintings from the 1810s, 1820s. But most of the community were engaged in either fishing or a bit earlier salt pans, so drying out the salt water, getting the salt, and then using it to dry or cure some of the fish. So it's a coastal fishing community, as we can see, lots of activity. It doesn't look particularly hospitable. But alongside fishing 
came the rise of another darker trade or activity that many people engaged with in an informal level, and that was smuggling, making sure that goods were run to shore in many of these small coves or inlets to avoid the customs collectors at the major ports. And many of the local people derived income from taking the goods from many of these ships that would moor up, unload, and then disperse the tea, sometimes whiskey, but quite often exotic goods, into the local communities a bit further inland. And they took a cut of any of the money that was used when these goods were sold on. So, historically, we see lots of pictures such as this, of people coming in, fishing, but many of them were actually involved in smuggling as well. This was a major problem in the 18th century, particularly on some of the wilder and more rugged parts of the northeast coast. So to try and cut out this problem, there was a very sophisticated system in place, run in many ways by the Board of Customs in London, and establishing outports where customs officers would work. In many ways, there were two sorts of customs officers. There were those who handled the goods that were legitimately passed through each of the ports. So the ships would come in, unload their goods, they would be hailed in warehouses, so they were assessed, the relevant amount of duty would be paid, and then they would be distributed on from there. But equally, you had the preventative arm of the customs, and you had on the shore the riding officers making sure that many of these smaller coves or inlets were patrolled to stop people unloading goods unlawfully. And alongside the riding officers, you would have custom ships sailing up and down the coast, challenging vessels that were heavily armed or were looking to veer away from the ports and land their goods surreptitiously, often at the dead of night. So there was a real effort to try and cut out tax evasion. And in many ways, people from the local community would often sign up to the Board of Customs and work the coasts because they were familiar with all of these coves and inlets. And that really is where our story of the Armstrongs begin. Tracking down an individual is actually quite easy for the 18th century. It's one of those areas where the organisation of central government made it much more likely to find the individuals who were being employed in the service. I've just given you a few of the sample books here. These are the correspondence files the outport records, the correspondence both from the local collectors back to the board in London, who had the national administration and would coordinate all of the local activity, and then the responses back. So you get a two-way dialogue from the centre to the regions and back again. And it would cover a vast amount of material. We'd find information such as personnel records. We'd also find information about the boats and ships that were being used. So immediately we find names and rank. So we can find an awful lot about the 18th century seamen and mariners from local communities who were being hired by the customs officers to go out and defend the shores. But it's also a source for people interested in some of the shipping of the time as well. It's not just about people. It's about the mechanics of mobilising various boats and ships, the dimension of the ships and how well they were repaired. So the correspondence file, these outport records, have a huge amount of detail of the expenditure that was put out, not just in building the ships and equipping them, but actually making sure the whole operation worked. Expenses claimed for ballast, expenses claimed for the seizures on board. And, of course, this could be quite a profitable business 
for the officers who were involved. This is, again, from Thomas Armstrong's account, the ship he was in charge of, the Bridlington that we've seen referenced already. And in these years, he was clearly accruing quite a lot of money. These are seizures. These are the amounts of goods that he seized from ships who were trying to unload their cargoes unlawfully and then return them to the customs office. And they take a share in this. So you can see it was in his best interests to be as effective and efficient as possible. The amount starting out quite low, £94.41, rising to a quite astonishing £1,210 in 1767. He was clearly very proficient at his job. But these records also tell us a little bit more about the type and quantity of goods that were coming into Britain during the 18th century. So here we have an account from 72 to 74 for raisins and sultanas and currants that were being unloaded into and out of Newcastle. And you have a whole range of different materials coming in. So cloths and damask coming in from India, for example. Tea, vast amounts of tea coming in. You can work out pretty much how many people were drinking tea in the northeast at this time because there were simply tons of the stuff coming in, literally. And, of course, various sorts of liquor. So anchors of brandy, whiskey. So a lot of material coming in and out of the ports that just give you an insight into the sort of lives people would have led and the sort of possessions and goods they were looking at. But, of course, the area that I was particularly interested in when I first came across Thomas Armstrong was the anti-smuggling operations and how these individuals, often drawn from the local community, would then interact with their friends and neighbours and what tensions this might actually produce. So in many ways, the records are more than just a series of correspondence bouncing backwards and forwards from London to the outports. It gets you to the heart of what life was like for these folk in the 18th century, many of whom had grown up with the sea, with the threat of smuggling, many of whom perhaps had even started out helping the smugglers and then had turned coat and joined the customs. And that's the landscape that we're going to investigate with Thomas Armstrong. Small, isolated, coastal communities, quite often very poor, reliant upon goods or the smuggling associated with the goods, or alternatively signing up and helping the Crown fight off the activities of their friends and neighbours. Alongside these output records, there are supplementary documentation. The Treasury is a great source. We also find some personnel files and establishment lists where you find pay. But for me, the correspondence in many ways, is the best part of all. I'm going to talk a little bit about Thomas Armstrong, because in many ways he's both the hero and the villain of the piece. And to understand the house and the community in which he lived, we have to understand a little bit more about the man. A bit of genealogy, baptised in Earsden, again, very close to North Shields on the northeast coast, 1735, to Nicholas Armstrong and his wife, Mary Shevel. They'd married the previous year, And Nicholas was a very upstanding member of the community. He had signed up to the customs at a young age. And he was a riding officer in charge of the inland side of operations, riding on horseback, of course, up and down the coast, coordinating his limited number of resources and men, making sure that there was communication between the major ports of Newcastle and Sunderland and all the creeks and ports in between. So in many ways, he was the eyes and ears of the customs operation on land. And as a result, he was able to use a lot of his power and influence to secure good jobs for his sons, of which he had many and numerous over the next 10 to 15 years. Nicholas, as we'll find out, 
started out on board the ships, but many of his other sons took important positions within the administration. His brother, uh, Nicola, Thomas's brother Richard, for example, ended up in the writing office of the controller of the local customs, so a very important job, helping to create many of the records that we'll see. And Thomas's younger brother Robert also went onto the boats and had a very colourful career. Thomas, let's say, was a very fiery character from an early age. He got his first break when he was appointed the first mate of the sloop, the Bridlington. And this happened when he was only 23 years old. So he's got a really important position. He's very young, he's very green, but he's also very eager and keen to show his worth, possibly to show his father that he was a very important figure, but I think more likely because he had an eye on the main chance at a very young age, because within a year, he was already fighting with his crew and he was trying to use his position to climb up the career ladder. He was embroiled in a fight just one year after he'd been appointed with a chap called William Allison, a mariner, over a cooking pot, which Allison wanted to bring on board, but Thomas Armstrong wasn't so happy about, and so he struck him. And this caused a fight, and Armstrong then knocked the poor chap out. It's a bit unfortunate because he went on to be his brother-in-law. So quite how that family dispute was settled, I really don't know. But equally, when William Allison is complaining about Thomas's actions in knocking him out over a cooking pot, he mentions that Thomas was embezzling some of the seizures that the ship was bringing on board. So they'd go up alongside a smuggling vessel, challenge them, saying, why haven't you put these goods to the local port, take them on board, and then return them to the customs house so that they could be weighed and valued accordingly and sold on. And it was typical, as I've explained earlier, for some of that to then be retained by the crew as a reward or a bonus for their good service. But it seems that Thomas was already being accused within one year of taking on the job of keeping some of this to himself and not actually declaring it to his paymasters. This seems to have caused great tension between himself and his captain, a Captain Coverdale. And Coverdale himself complains about Thomas's activities, that he wasn't handing over the right amount of seizure. Matters came to a head and... Nicholas Armstrong was asked to intervene. He was given a letter saying, right off, bring Captain Coverdale on shore, thrash it out amongst you, reach resolution. Nicholas tried to do this. Coverdale had nothing to do with him, basically accused him as being as corrupt as his son. The upshot? Nicholas and Thomas engineered Captain Coverdale's dismissal and Thomas took over the command of the Bridlington. So... This really is a foretaste of what's to come. Thomas is ruthless, zealous, eager, but already tainted with suspicion. Is he really on the side of the customs, or is he doing deals with some of the smugglers? Now, you could perhaps understand why many of the customs officers either were quite afraid to put to sea, and that was one of the charges against Coverdale, that he wasn't actually going to sea as much as he should, or perhaps found it easier to do deals with the smugglers who were quite often heavily armed and not afraid to use the weapons they had at their disposal. The job was dangerous. Not only could he have accidental deaths, such as poor William Allison, who, after his fight with Thomas, moved away from the ships and ended up 
linked to one of the ports. He was a tidesman and boatman, so their job was to really go out in smaller vessels to meet the ships as they came in. And in rough and stormy seas, his boat overturned, along with six other men, and he drowned. Which, again, I think is a really important point to make, just like many of the naval mariners in the Royal Navy and the Merchant Navy, many of these people simply could not swim. So going on board these vessels was incredibly dangerous. If you go overboard, you would probably drown, and that is what happened to poor old William Allison. But, of course, there were other dangers as well. And this extract here, which occurred on board Thomas's vessel as he was trying to board a customs, cup, a customs um, a smuggling vessel, the crew fell upon them with axes and other offensive weapons. They basically tried to cut up the crew of Thomas's ship. Some very detailed description there. And so in many ways it's perhaps understandable why Thomas and many of his other colleagues gave as good as they got. There was virtually a naval battle going on in the North Sea throughout this period. And we have one of the ships that Thomas approached complaining about him, a ship called the Prosperous, who said that Thomas had fired so briskly in the chase that many shots were lodged in her hull and mast and her sails shot through. One of the crew was killed in the engage. And and Thomas was criticised by Customs House, saying that he was highly blamable for firing first and Armstrong extremely culpable for not seizing the vessel when he had possession. So there's danger on the water, there's danger on land. You're damned if you do and damned if you don't. If you don't show sufficient force, you're apt to get cut to pieces. But then if you fire first and kill some of the potential smugglers, you get castigated that way as well. And this is why so many of the officers led this sort of shady double life. Are you for us or are you against us? But by 1771, it was clear that Thomas had perhaps overstepped the mark. And once again, he's called to account for his honesty and probity. He's accused of embezzling five bags of tea not tea bags, but obviously huge sacks containing the raw tea leaves, 48 half-anchors of Geneva, which he said was taken from a smuggling cutter lying off the coast on the 11th of August, 1771. And he failed to declare this. Now, of course, this was a cardinal sin. If you can't trust your customs officers to do their job properly and to take all the goods they've seized back to port so it can be valued and sold on, then, to be honest, as this particular report says... They can't trust them and they should be dismissed. And Captain Armstrong is hauled in to his local outport. The collector, the man in charge of the operation, gives him a dressing down and writes back to London, saying, this is what's happened, what do you recommend? Normally, as the answer suggests, he would have been dismissed. This is the crime of the highest nature and well-deserving dismission. But Thomas gets off. He gets off relatively lightly. And so he's suspended from duty for three months with loss of pay. And he's also fined a further three months' salary. So this is a pretty hefty punishment. And to add insult to injury, which was the intention, this was publicly handed down to him in front of all of the other customs officials in the port. So public humiliation, financial loss, and of course, a final warning for Thomas. And it's round about this time that other aspects of his life firstly start to come under greater scrutiny 
at work, but also fall apart at home. And in digging around a little bit more deeply in the records here at the National Archives, I stumbled across a quite extraordinary family feud that seems to have broken out. Now, if you remember, I mentioned earlier that Thomas had married into the Allison family. He had actually married Jane Allison, the sister of William Allison, in 1760. In 1770, her father dies, Charles Allison, who was also on board the ships, again, reaffirming this connection between the sea and many of the families that worked both on the land and on the customs uh, ships. So Charles dies... And Thomas is named as the main executor of his will. Now, this is treated with great suspicion. Obviously, he didn't get on well with the family. He'd had this big argument with William, who had conveniently died. And it sounds as though he had had very little to do with his father-in-law, or indeed his mother-in-law, either. So much so that doubts were raised about the legitimacy of the will that Charles was meant to have written up. It appeared to have been in a very different hand, one suspiciously close to Thomas's. And when you actually look at the terms of the will, perhaps people were right to be suspicious because every single scrap of wealth, goods, possessions or house was left to Thomas's wife. And Jane, her mother, was cut out of the will completely. She went to court contesting this saying something is going on here. And as soon as she'd gone down to London, to the Court of Chancery, to put in a bill of complaint against Thomas's actions, questioning the validity of the will, raising doubts about whether or not he'd forged it, he snuck into her house and took away all of the possessions and goods and legal documentation, claiming that he needed them to carry out the terms of the will. He basically took away the evidence she needed to prove her case. And as soon as she'd done that... And was staying in London, putting in this bit of complaint, he went up to the local assizes and had her thrown into prison on her return for contempt of court, for daring to challenge the will. So Thomas now begins to come across as a rather nasty, manipulative individual. The gloss is beginning to wear off. This huge family feud rumbles on. We get repeated bills of complaints drafted from Morpeth Jail, where this poor woman is languishing, via the legal representations she's still able to get, complaining that all the evidence is gone, she now can't prove her innocence, it's been taken by Thomas, and that's where she ends her days. She never gets out. So he's lost his father-in-law at sea under mysterious circumstances, his brother-in-law is already drowned, and now his mother-in-law is banged up in the local prison to stop her being a nuisance. One can only wonder what his wife thought of his actions at this time. Alongside the family feud we begin to see a lot more about the way tensions between customs officers and the people that they were meant to be serving in the local communities came to a head. And now we turn our attention to Thomas's brother, Robert, who by this stage had also got a commission on one of the ships. Robert Armstrong was the second mate of the Eagle Cutter, and the Eagle and Thomas's new ship, the Mermaid, tended to patrol together, very convenient. All four main officers were friends, Their connections go way back. They often stood surety for each other, which meant they basically put up money to confirm that they were going to abide by the law. So obviously if they didn't, that surety would be paid over to the customs. 
So they're a very close-knit group operating the two main customs cutters, and Robert is part of this. He's very implicit in the net that Thomas is starting to cast. And there's a spectacular falling out with one of the mariners on Robert's ship, Thomas Crowther. The feud explodes into life in 1773. Robert tries to seize a custom ship in the neighbouring port of Sunderland. The officials there suspect that he's actually in league with the smugglers, chaps called Lucas and Wallard, and refuse to let him on board. A fight breaks out, and during the course of the fight, he strikes someone called Thomas Crowther. The feud escalates, and by 1774, Crowther tries to break into Robert Armstrong's house on shore to seize some of the goods that he's claiming Robert had taken from the ships illegally to prove that he was actually embezzling like his brother Thomas has been doing. Robert shoots him in the groin, claiming that he's defending his wife. Well, he shot him through a closed door, so quite how that works I do not know. But of course this case is then once more brought before both the customs officers and the law enforcement agents. Both men are incarcerated, whilst the merits of their case are adjudged. And again, this is a really interesting instance where the customs procedures work in parallel with the normal due course and process of the law. Thomas Crowther is once again put in prison by Thomas Armstrong. And once again, you see this modus operandi where Thomas comes along and seizes all the material that Thomas Crowther needs to prove his innocence. All the ship's papers that he'd been gathering, all the notes he'd been taking about the seizures reported and the seizures actually made. So Thomas Armstrong is trying to strangle him using the process of law to stop him falling into the hands of the customs officials, i.e. to blow the cover on what he's meant to be doing. But it rather backfires, because Thomas Crowther is let out and makes his complaint and the whole dispute escalates. Robert languishes in Morpeth Jail for common assault, for shooting Thomas Crowther, and he stays there for the best part of 12 months. He also loses his job. But the complaints against Thomas Armstrong keep on coming. More people are suddenly disputing his version of events. His crew start to desert until you've got a loyal core working on both the eagle and the mermaid. And it's almost as though he knows his time is up. He starts to attack shipping with greater ferocity and greater regularity over the course of the next 12 to 18 months. The letter books are full of complaints from ship's captains saying, what on earth is going on here? Thomas Armstrong is out of control. He spends more and more time at sea, so he can't actually be brought before the collector and his officials to be upbraided for his actions. So he's literally staying at sea to avoid the ultimate reckoning. But of course, he can't stop. He's got a taste, not quite literally for the Geneva and other liquor, but he's got a taste for the money that all of this ill-gotten gain can bring in. And eventually, purely by chance, his downfall is secured in 1776, 
when he seizes a ship and his brother's ship comes alongside and the order is given to lock all of the smugglers in the brig, apart from the two principal smugglers, Lucas and Wallard, who we saw earlier named when Robert Armstrong had a fight with all the people in Sunderland. Lucas and Wallards, the report goes on to claim, were on such good terms with the crews of the Eagle and the Mermaid that they frequently breakfasted and dined with them on board decks before being escorted to a rowing boat and were allowed to make their escape. This would have gone unreported if it hadn't been for a customs officer staying on board and witnessing some of these events. As soon as it was realised that he was actually working for one of the ports, they tried to throw him overboard and drown him and get rid of, obviously, his visual evidence. He made his escape and reported this to Thomas's collector at Newcastle. And as a result, Thomas was finally brought to justice. We are therefore of the opinion that there is the strongest reason to believe that the escape of Lucas and Wallard was concerted between them, the officers of the Cutters, and that they are therefore unworthy of any future trust or confidence, and we have therefore dismissed them. So finally, Thomas is revealed for what he was first accused of the best part of 18 years previously. He'd crossed the line. Many similar captains had perhaps dabbled in taking a few goods for themselves. Thomas made a career of it. So on the one hand, he's getting paid by the customs service to go out and seize the smugglers. But it becomes clear, as more evidence starts to be brought in for this prosecution in 1776, that he would quite often board a ship, take something for himself, and then let it go again. Or actively help the smugglers land in quiet bays, knowing full well that his father, Nicholas Armstrong, would be somewhere else. He used his local intelligence and his networks, both on land and at sea, to effectively coordinate the smuggling operation on this particular stretch of coast for the best part of a 10 to 12 year period, quite often fighting off not so much smuggling ships, as it turns out, but the legitimate trade of this area. And when he did feel the need to take a seizure, he'd obviously get a cut of that as well. So he had it both ways. And this begins to explain some of the strange architectural features of his house. In the aftermath of his scandal, you think that's the last you'd ever hear of Thomas Armstrong. But his name keeps cropping up again and again and again in the records. Even though he had been dismissed in March, it took him until July to actually land on the coast and hand back his ship, the Mermaid. And during that time he had the temerity to claim expenses for whilst he'd been at sea for both provisioning his men and also he wanted some of the seizures that he claimed to have taken as well. So effectively, he parks the boat, hands it back, and steals five tonnes of iron ballast out of the bottom of it, which we later learn he then transfers to a ship that he himself is starting to build. So there we have a quantity of iron ballast wanted. So he's not only handed the boat back, he's taken half of the stuff away from it as well. And having found this revelation about his other career, the house makes more sense. 
because in those two cellars are a series of iron cages. And this is what we discovered when we looked at a trap door underneath his study when filming House Detectives. This trap door had never really been seen before. For some reason, it had always been covered up by boarding and a rug on top of it. And as we were nosing around, we opened it up and discovered this secret cellar. And we're pretty certain that this is where he used to run quite a lot of his ill-gotten gains from the shore into his house and then through his distribution network on the shore. So the tunnel, this myth about there were always smugglers' tunnels, this actually was really a smugglers' tunnel. We were quite delighted. Unfortunately, um, for health and safety reasons, the local authorities had blocked it up at some point in the 1980s, so we couldn't actually find where it went out. But it was one of those wonderful television moments where we made the discovery live whilst poking around and then had to go back and stage filming it as though it's a real discovery, which is always very frustrating. Um, and we shouldn't perhaps stray onto that territory, particularly with who do you think you are running at the moment. So it explains why he spent so much time and money building this house, because he saw it as a key part of his smuggling operation. And so, of course, as soon as his official career has finished, he simply takes up where he left off. He's built a boat. He's even nicked the ballast to weight it down from his previous ship. And he carries on as a goldsmith, although we suspect that a lot of his activity was still continuing the rapacious attitude towards customs, excise and the securement of goods. The story doesn't really end there. Thomas dies in 1785, age 51, and leaves his possessions to various family members. But quite remarkably, his son Nicholas is then brought into the customs service. So having had this rather dubious father figure, Thomas Armstrong, the next generation take up the baton. And so Nicholas Armstrong Jr., Thomas's son, Nicholas Senior's grandson, ends up commanding Thomas's old ship, the Mermaid. And he starts out on a very similar career. He goes round, capturing as many ships as possible. Until one day, he dies on board in 1788 in very mysterious circumstances. In fact, so concerned of the crew that he's left on board for the best part of three days before his body is eventually removed. The family continued to live in the area and retained the house until the 1820s when it was sold on and then became, in many ways, a boarding house. And the story of the Armstrongs would have remained completely undetected if it wasn't for that chance discovery of the newspaper article and trawling through the outport records. Now, hopefully that's given a bit of a flavour of how useful these sources actually are. The records here are in a series of CUST CUST files. They're arranged by the outport that they relate to, and a lot of them start from the 1660s onwards. So if you are trying to find a history of a coastal community, these correspondence records are absolutely pivotal. As I said at the beginning, you will find out not just about the flow of goods or the value of seizures, but about the lives of many of these people who perhaps wouldn't even know existed but are recorded in very rich, vivid detail. Thomas Armstrong, I guess, is a very larger-than-life, colourful figure. 
and I've glossed over various other elements, seriously, that you could go through for several days and pick out every single time he fired on a ship or his crew were involved with the scrape with some of the smugglers. But you do get a sense of trajectory, and you also get a sense that there is no black or white, right or wrong, when you look at some of these people. It's very easy to judge and say, these guys were the smugglers, these guys were there to uphold the law. It's a blurred picture. And even the customs officers themselves who were in charge of discipline, the collector and his officials at the port, weren't above the odd backhand every now and again. We suspect that Thomas managed to get off his first brush with the law in 1771 because a mysterious gift of um, a few casks of Geneva made their way to the collector's house one evening. So in many ways, it allows us to completely reappraise the way we approach coastal communities and how they work and operate. The traditional view that locals were in league with the smugglers, well, yes, there was an element of that as well, but those same local people were also being brought in to work on the customs. They were manning the ships. They faced danger pretty much every single day, whether from drowning by going overboard in very rough and dangerous seas or from being fired upon were involved in pitched battles on shore or on the ships. They were under enormous pressure. We can tell that from the way both the captains and mates of the crews drove them forward into very dangerous situations, but under pressure from their own officials as well to constantly seize goods. And one thing that's very marked from just reading through a sequential series of these letter books is just how sophisticated some of the smugglers became both in terms of the arms and armaments and also the evasion techniques. One of the things that Thomas constantly complains about, and this is why I think it's perhaps a bit unfair to portray him and others as villains for the whole of the time, because I genuinely believe that many of them did want to protect themselves and as much of the revenue as they could. And you sense an exasperation in the tone of his correspondence that he isn't being given more support. He's always saying, I want a bigger ship, I want a better ship. And yet, the collectors would refuse him this. And so you feel that he turned perhaps a little bit too far to working with the smugglers, partly to increase his revenue, but perhaps also to help save his skin. He doesn't strike me as the sort of person who would turn away from conflict. But on a number of occasions, he says, I just had to break off the chase because we were heavily outnumbered and outgunned. So when you think of the 18th century, and you think of quixotic films such as Whiskey Galore and locals rolling barrels from shipwrecks or perhaps even drawing ships onto the rocks at night. In many ways, these are the extremes. The truth, as we find from these letter books, is somewhere in the middle. There are lots of grey areas. The fascination, really, is bringing the people back to life. And if you have got any interest in both the 18th century or coastal communities in general be they through a genealogical purpose for the customs officers and many of the men who would be completely unrecorded in any other source, or perhaps the nature or texture of life in these wild, remote coastal communities. It's definitely worth just browsing through these outport letters and books. In many ways, they bridge the gap between the onset of civil registration and the census returns, where we understand more about the complete picture of these communities and a lost way of life. Colourcoats today is transformed, it's busy, it's been swallowed up by Newcastle. But as we saw in those very early pictures, we're going back 
to a very different nature and tenor of life. And it's often through correspondence sources rather than pure genealogical sources that we can actually bring these lives back into public attention. This talk was recorded on the 1st of August 2013 at the National Archives, Kew. This talk was sponsored by the Friends of the National Archives. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. <laughs>